Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. Today in the program, I'm talking with Rania Karula about her book, The Federal Theater Project, 1935 to 1939, Engagement and Experimentation. Rania, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I, I'd like to start off with asking you kind of how you became involved in theater and theater studies in the first place. Um, well, it kind of starts from a kind of young age. I mean, I grew up in Greece and theater was everywhere, was easily accessible from school, you know, performances, recitals, but also we had a home city company, both amateur and professional. And it was so easy for my parents to take us there, you know, to see performances appropriate to our age. And of course, we studied it at school and high school. And also, the you know, while I was growing up, Karagiosis, I don't know if you've heard of it, which is the Greek shadow puppet theater, was very popular. So that got us involved into making our own figures, uh, you know, kind of writing, making up a play, then performing it with friends in our neighborhood, that sort of thing. And um, I got into modernist theater where I kind of, the book and, you know, my keen interest while I was studying English literature. And I saw live performances of modernist theater. I still vividly remember the Vagina Monologues performance. I was so excited, mm-hmm. the interaction that the actresses had with the audience, the participation. Um, the subject matter was very uh, interesting to me. And then when I moved to Edinburgh, uh, which is where I'm currently living, you know, in August, the International, the Fringe Festival, like the whole city becomes a theatrical space and experiment and you're just part of it. You just can't avoid it. So that's sort of how it happened. <laughs> right. What a great place to be for a theater scholar. Um, yeah. Could you, could yeah, you so, talk a little bit more about how you became interested in the Federal Theater Project specifically? Um, it was by chance as the best things in life happen, you know, Uh I was doing my PhD um, and 
the way it was, it was taking the path of a transatlantic study. So I wanted to, you know, study the relation between form and content in theater in Europe and the United States. So I had kind of picked up already my, um, you know, the the kind of the academic side of things, you know, who was going to discuss from Europe, you know, Lukács, Brecht, you know, Adorno, and then from the States, the New York intellectuals. And I had my theatrical example, but I was like my American one. And I was quite in a pickle because I couldn't find something I really liked. And then in one of my sessions with my supervisor, she mentioned the Federal Theatre Project. And I was like, what is that? And that was the beginning, really, <laughs> of, <laughs> of my research trip. And then I, I did as much research as I could uh, in the UK. And then almost like Flanagan, I applied and got a scholarship and then moved to Virginia and Washington, D.C. to study the archives in George Mason University and the Library of Congress. It's it's funny to me that the archives are at George Mason because that's quite a, a, a right wing school these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I know. How, they, how they ended up there. Uh, um, yeah, they ended up there because Lorraine Brown, who was working there, she was the one that discovered the all the archives of the Federal Theatre Project in crates in a warehouse. That's how it happened, and they stored it for years before the material being moved to the Library of Congress. Oh wow, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. You you briefly mentioned Hallie Flanagan um, in in the context of you doing a fellowship to study in the U.S. in the, in the same way that she did a fellowship to study theater in Europe. Could you tell us a bit about Hallie Flanagan and what was her background and how she got chosen to head the Federal Theater Project? Um, yeah, sure. So Hallie Flanagan, she's she's led an interesting life, and for me, she's a formidable. Um, theatrical, academic, and playwright. So she was an academic really at Vassar College, and she was very interested in experimental theater, in directing, and in actor training. And she studied under George Baker in his 47 workshop um, studio in in Harvard. And um, he endorsed her and, you know, he told her, you really need to take this further. You really need to go to Europe and, you know, look at the, what's happening in Europe um, in the 90, 1920s and 1930s. So she was awarded, she was, uh, to my knowledge, she was the first female to be granted a Guggenheim Fellowship. And then she spent uh, a whole year and a bit in 1926 traveling in Europe and just studying the European theatrical traditions and innovations. And when she came back, she wrote all, everything she experienced there in a book called The Shifting Shins of the uh, European Theatre in 1929. And that book, um, you know, informed American um, theatre playwrights, designers, uh, producers, playwrights, directors, everything of what was happening in Europe. And um, now how she was chosen, um, well, she studied it at Greenell College and she was a close friend of Harry Hopkins. Now, Harry Hop- Hopkins was one of President Roosevelt's closest advisors and he was the director of the Works Progress Administration. So when it came to setting up the Federal Theatre Project, he just recruited her. And, you know, by that time, Flanagan had built up a reputation of, you know, mounting innovative 
theater productions. And she was very interested in art education, which, you know, it's a similar interest to Eleanor Roosevelt. So it's as if all the stars align sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think another reason was um, that she was a fresh face, if I could put it like that. You know, there was all these accusations. Why didn't they choose a more experienced person? Why didn't they choose somebody from Broadway? You know, somebody who knew about theater or theater management, if you like, on a grander scale. And I think the fact that she had no connection or no allegiance to commercial theater actually was a bonus. Um, you know, her allegiance was only to one thing, making theater accessible to all American audiences. Yeah, it is kind of um, unbelievable that somebody who is quite an experimental, uh, you know, academic and and artist was given charge of such a a huge program. I mean, it's like it's like if you had a federal theater project today and Ann Bogart in charge of it or something like that. Like it's it's um, it's quite an extraordinary decision that they make. It is, but I think they lived in extraordinary times as well. You know, uh, you have to sit within the context of what was happening. And even the New Deal uh, program for its time was extraordinary. It was, you know, putting people at the center of economics, which was, you know, not what had happened up to that point. And they needed somebody who was fresh and enthusiastic and had great knowledge of theater. Uh, And I think she was the right person. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe if I can, you know, stretch it a bit far, the fact that um, Eleanor Roosevelt was so keen in arts played a role, I think, in choosing a woman as opposed to a man for that position. Because of all the, the Work Progress Administration's projects, the Federal Theater Project was the only one that had a woman as a director. Mm, that's interesting. Well, yeah. Um, one of the accusations that was leveled against the Federal Theater Project by the House on American Activities Committee was that the type of theater that Holly Flanagan was promoting was communist or communist inspired. Um, and she would always insist that actually what they were trying to do was create distinctly American plays and American theatrical styles. Um, now, you know, 70 years after the fact, we maybe can ask this question a little bit more objectively than it did at the time, which is how much was the Federal Theater Project influenced by the communist avant-garde playwrights like Brecht, Piscotter, the early Soviet theater? How much was that an influence on what the Federal Theater Project was doing? Um. I think, and that's what I was trying to do in the book, I think it was massively influenced, but I don't think this is, or I don't see this as a drawback. I, you know, in the book, I'm trying to create a dialogue and actually say, you know, what was happening in Europe um, traveled in the States and what was happening in the States, you know, then, you know, was reported back to Europe. And Let's not forget, Flanagan stayed, you know, during her trip in Europe that I mentioned before. She spent most of her time in Soviet Russia. And it was not by accident because everything that was sort of in was happening in Russia at that time. You know, Mm -hmm. so you had um, the Blue Blouse group who were putting up uh, performances um, in the streets in a living newspaper style. And that required little 
if you like, props or little um, settings or costumes. And it aimed at creating material that was accessible to the, to the mostly illiterate Russian audience at the time. You also have Meyerhold, you know, in his methods of uh, biomechanics. Uh, that was very interesting because he was creating a new style of acting. You also have Stanislavski there, you know, who was so influential for American theater. And also, um, you know, Brecht and the epic theater, his didactic plays, there were, you know, everybody was aware of those things and those experimentations taking place uh, in Europe. So when Flanagan traveled there, she saw all those things. Of course, she was influenced. You know, it was... You know, and she reported back. And another thing to keep in mind in that many of the people that participate in the Federal Theatre Project, um, Americans, I mean, they had traveled to Europe before Halifelandgar and after. So they knew of Brecht. They knew his theory of the epic theatre, for example, such as um, Joseph Lossi, who directed Triple A Plowed Under or Injunction Grounded, or Mark Blitzstein, who did The Cradle Will Rock. And also Brecht had traveled to the U.S. You know, in 1935, the Theater Union was going to put a production of The Mother in New York. So there was always this interaction or intersection, if you like, between those two traditions. So um, I think the FTP was influenced by that experimental drama. You know, whether it, um, I don't think it committed or it uh, agreed with the communist aspirations of many of those people, but it was influenced but you know in terms of experimentation modes of presentation or representation and you know the the actual performativity of it mm-hmm. i have a friend whose mother was an actress in the federal theater project oh, and, and was I also <laughs> yeah I, mean, I don't know if she's well i'm not sure if she's still alive actually but um <laughs> But yeah, she was a, she was an actress in the Federal Theater Project and was also a, a member of the uh, U.S. Communist Party. So oh. certainly there was at least one person who overlapped both of those spheres. <laughs> I'm yes. sure many more. Yes, there were people, you know, that were part of the Federal Theater Project that belonged to the Communist Party. But again, I think we need to contextualize it because at that point, the Communist Party in, 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 in the United States was not... There was... The paranoia of the Cold War or the, you know, anti-communist sentiment hadn't sunk in, you know, at that point. You right. know, communists represented, even within America, a different experiment that they wanted to try or they, you know, it dealt with issues that people wanted to be part of. It was still more romantically seen, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, part of, it's during the popular front era where they were yeah. in coalition with a lot of other progressive groups. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the the political stance of the Federal Theater Project plays is so interesting to me. You have a play like Triple A Plowed Under, which is a sort of critique of the Agricultural Adjustment Administration from the left. Um, and then you also have the Federal Theater Project accused of essentially being just propaganda for the New Deal. So they're sort of <laughs> kind of squeezed from both sides in a way where, you know, they don't want to seem like they're too... Um, Sympathize too too kind of symbiotic towards the New Deal, but they also don't want to seem like they're you know crazy left wing propaganda either. Um, so how do they kind of navigate the the somewhat contradictory demands um, politically that that people placed on their work? 
with great difficulty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very carefully, sure. <laughs> and 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 kind of with 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 a bit of naivety as well. Um, there's this great quote by Harry Hopkins when the FTP was um, introduced, and he made this proclamation that we will offer free adult uncensored theater. Uh, lots of directors or playwrights took that almost utopian proclamation to heart. So they started allowing plays with coming from any side of life, with anything, you know, left, uh, you know, with social issues, economic issues, everything, uh, to be produced or performed. So, uh, you know, they, it, you know, they initially approved everything, regardless of the content. And then, of course, censorship kicked in. Uh, with, for example, the play Ethiopia, which had nothing to do with, you know, leftist politics, if you like. Um, so, but the problem was that on the one hand, you had people involved with the Federal Theatre Project that had leftist or communist sympathies, if you like, and they wanted to express those. On the other, you know, this is a governmentally funded theatre. So it, you know, it wanted to produce plays that kind of show those policies that, you know, the government was, or the steps that the government was taking to, you know, make things better. Did What's that ultimately it? restrict the, the kind of, the range of political opinions that were acceptable to the, to the Federal Theatre Project? Well, it depends, because the thing is, what we're talking now, when it comes to politics, and especially when it comes to what led, if you like, to the downfall of the Federal Theatre Project, is a specific set of plays, which were called the Living Newspapers. This is the most political form of theatre that the FTP put out, you know, overtly political or ideological, if you like. Um, and... Those plays, you know, there's a great distinction between the productions of the first two years of the Federal Theater Project, which was more, if you like, leftist or communist, if you like, and the second one, which was more New Deal policies or aspiring or, or actually, uh, if you like, uh, saying to the people, you know, your government is looking after you. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But, it, it you know, I think... The House and American Activities Committee used the Living Newspaper as an example of theater having or producing plays of specific ideologies. And that restricted what the FTP was about or what it did in its totality. And, and Flanagan herself actually did censor some of the plays, right? Like she she would give suggestions that things were too didactic or, you know, the messaging need to be toned down or, or things like that uh, as, a, as an attempt to kind of stave off the those criticisms from the right. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yes. I mean, yes, definitely. I don't, I'm not sure I would use the word censor per se, uh, but yeah, she had strong opinions when things were becoming or when she thought, because she had to find balance to keep, you mm-hmm. know, she, she might have wanted things to become experimental or she might have wanted place uh, to deal with issues that were never represented before or never talked before but uh, you know what really what she didn't count on was how polemical those views were or how polemically uh, they were represented on stage and how open you know uh, 
some playwrights uh, were about those things. So, you know, she could read a script or she could see um, the preview, if you like, and she would come back and say, um, for example, um, I mean, she didn't use that word, but for example, triple uh, A plowed under, you know, she could say it was, this is kind of like a pink play. You know, it was far, it was edging too close to the left, whereas Injunction Granted was thought as a red play, you know, a completely kind of leftist communist play. So she, it's interesting with her because I think in terms of techniques, she approved the techniques that were used in the plays, but she couldn't control the way or the message that was coming out. Mm-hmm. She was trying to navigate that. She was trying to say to the playwrights, you know, there are people fighting us from day one. Be aware of that. But, you know, a creative person is not, a, you know, a bureaucrat or a, you know, or a manager. They don't look at that. So she had the tough job to do, I think. Right. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mean to, um, you know, criticize her personally, necessarily. Oh. But I, I, I do think it's um, it's worth noting that those those pressures from the outside did affect the types of work that got approved and produced and and promoted. And also what, not only that, but also what was performed and then cut the next day, because you had instances like that, especially especially with, um, you know, uh, some performances from the Negro Theater, for example. Mm-hmm. So you had instances like that. and Or you had um, instances where a play was approved and never performed. Mm-hmm. So you know they went through everything, the previous stuff, and then it was it was never out, when never went out to the public. Yeah, that must have been so disappointing. Uh, yes, because if you think about it, those people, some of those plays that were cut out were original plays. You know, there were people took the time to research, to write, to rehearse, to find the right actors, to do a bit of you know set designing, directing, the lighting, the music. You know, they put their heart and soul in those productions. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was, you know, they worked like professionals. And then to be told, oh, it's a great one, you know, you know, have the support of the administration. It's going to happen, it's going to happen, and then not happen. I think that, that, I don't know, I can only imagine, but I could imagine this being almost a weekly, I don't want to say daily occurrence Yeah. in their lives. Um. We've talked about kind of the the liberal to left spectrum of plays. Were there any plays that were produced by the Federal Theater Project that offered a kind of conservative point of view or a, a, a critique from the right of Roosevelt's policies? Uh, well, I haven't read all their plays. <laughs> Definitely not the living newspapers, if I would yeah. say so. Um, I can't I can't be absolute and say there were or there weren't. I mean, I haven't come across any, but I think the way they try to balance it is that, you know, even from, you know, the statistics that I read, all those plays that were most, you know, had this left uh, allegiance were kind of like the 10% of the whole output that the FTP put out mm. there. For people. You know, most of the plays uh, that were produced were classical plays, you know, plays that were kind of comfortable and familiar for both, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, some of the actors, you know, or uh, producers or directors. So, you know, you 
across the country, the units would perform Shakespeare, for example, uh, Moliere, Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, they would produce contemporary drama from the U.S. like um, Maxwell Anderson or Elmer Rice. You know, Bernard, George Bernard Shaw gave his place to the project so they could be produced. Eugene O'Neill provided the same thing. So, you know, I, I can't say there was conservative place per se, but, you know, they tried to balance things out. Yeah. It's funny because I, I feel like we remember the Federal Theater Project for the living newspaper plays, and we forget that the vast majority of plays that they produced didn't have any particular political message, at least not explicitly at all. Yeah, I think it's because of its political persecution, mm-hmm. you know, that we remember because, you know, the committee used the living newspapers and certain other plays that show exhibited, if you like, a more socialist or leftist agenda as prime examples of um, how, uh, you know, communism had infiltrated American theater and, you know, the way, you know, how dangerous that was. And because they use that as a prime example, I think it's kind of has been immortalized sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, but, but you're right, because the FTP, it, there's, if you look at the archives, there are mass, masses and masses of it, you know, to be... Um, looked at, uh, you know, studied and examined, but at the same time, that sort of theatre, the living newspaper, was also quite exciting mm-hmm. because it was new and it was relevant. It was of its time. It dealt with issues that were happening right there, right then. You know, they could produce the living newspaper and if there was a change, for example, in um, a law that you know, past, for example, regarding power that had to do with electricity, the next day, the journalists or the playwrights would revisit the script and address that. So, you know, you were going to the theatre, you were watching something that had to do, you know, the audience were watching something that had to do with them, Mm -hmm. with their lives. They felt heard. They felt present on that stage. That makes sense. Sure. To what extent did the Federal Theater Project try to preserve the existing kind of pre-crisis state of the American theater? And to what extent did they try to change and and reform the the American theater and and bring in new uh, voices, new artists to the the art form? Well, you know, as as, as I said, you know, just... Or is it before judging from what they what they tried to the place they tried to put up? Of course, they tried to preserve what was happening in the states beforehand. But you know, in, to remember, if I'm not mistaken, that Broadway was in a crisis as well. You know, and the movie theater was losing a lot of its audience um, to the movies, and uh, you know, which was becoming more popular, if you like. So. Um, I, I, you know, they did try to preserve, if you like, some of the theater uh, that happened before it, but they also tried to, um, if you like, not educate, but nurture new talent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, new playwrights, for example, Arthur Arendt, that, you know, started, uh, wrote quite a few of the living newspapers, you know, was given a chance there. Um, 
Arthur Miller was given a chance there as well. You know, and we know what happened to him. What you know, what what went on, um, but also it fostered talent in terms of actors like Marlon Brando, in terms of directors like Elia Kazan. So it was the the fact that the project, you know, allowed many new artists to to emerge or to find a platform where they can test some ideas or, you know, experiment, if you like. One of the directors that you write about in the book was Orson Welles. And I kind of went away from the book thinking that if his experience with the Federal Theater Project had gone better, we might never have had Citizen Kane or, or, um, you know, any of his other great, great films, Magnificent Ambersons, et cetera. Um, Could you talk a little bit about his experience with the Federal Theater Project? I think he really came to it. I I, I mean, uh, he came straight by chance through uh, John Houseman, you know, Uh, he was the one that brought him in. Um, I think, um, well, he, you know, Orson Welles, he was very interested and infatuated with Shakespeare, you know, and um, when the the idea came for, you know, putting up Macbeth, uh, John Houseman knew that he had to have um, Orson Welles with him. So I think Welles enjoyed working he he was given if you like free reign the the fdp provided him with you know the opportunity he wanted to experiment with shakespeare you know and he 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 really enjoyed putting up macbeth and at the same time that experience made him want to produce more but the later experience of the cradle will rope with that didn't go that well made him feel like, you know, maybe the Federal Theatre Project was not what he thought it was. Um, apparently, and I'm not sure, he, he later on in his life, he wanted to do, um, um, he wrote a script about how the performers, how the credit would work, what happened, you know, the whole story, what happened behind it, the censorship and the performance, and... But that was never materialized. It would have been interested mm-hmm. if he did that movie, uh, and we could have seen what his point of view was regarding that experience. Um, uh, but you know, the the FTP was for Orson Welles. Um, uh, you know what he needed to make a name for himself. It afforded him the opportunities, and he, I think he learned a lot, and he made lots of connections that helped him further on, or when he, you know, moved on to the movies. You know, when he moved moved on, you know, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and uh, I, I think you know he, he knew that the production he could do with the FTP were you know, were experimental and controversial enough to create, you know, uh, that name. And uh, um, he would then be able to do more experimental, if you like, or controversial projects as well. 
In our current political climate, where people are so concerned about issues of cultural appropriation, the idea of a young white director like Orson Welles, I think he was you know, 23 or 24 at the yeah. time, directing an, an all-black production of Macbeth set in Haiti, where Macbeth is modeled after King Christophe, um, the, the post-revolution uh, king of Haiti, um, seems quite uh, risky to say the least, how was that production of Macbeth, the so-called voodoo Macbeth, received by the black community in Harlem at the time? Uh, well, there's a difference between, I would say, how the audience received it and how the American, the, the African-American literati received it. Mm. So, I mean, in terms of the audience, and that was a mixed audience, okay? You couldn't differentiate between, you know, African-Americans or whites, you know? Um they, they, they loved it. It was sold out. You know, all their performances for 10 weeks, uh, um, they were sold out. There were crowds outside every every night. And there, I think there are photographic um, evidences uh, online, but also in the archives, you know, attesting, if you like, to these events that there were just crowds of people excited to see it. Um, and the... the, the um, the African-American liter- literary community, things were a bit more complicated, I think, there, because you have the African-Americans wanting to carve a space for themselves. And as you said, having a young white male kind of using their tradition or, you know, putting that on stage, you know, it created a question, where is the space for African-American director? you know, or African-American playwright. Um, why can't we not do that? Why are we not afforded this opportunity, if you like? Will we ever be afforded? How does this, you know, voodoo, you know, Macbeth production fit in within the history of African-American theater productions? Um, so they were, they were a bit, if you like, dubious, or they weren't sure exactly how to situate or where to situate this performance in terms of their, you know, issues regarding their identity and their, their performative identity, you know, and their uh, cultural identity within, you know, American theatre. Right. It, it sort of reminds me of um, Eugene O'Neill's comments that black actors were the best actors to cast if you were doing a Greek tragedy because they came from a culture that understood the depth of tragedy in the way that ancient Greeks did, but sort of modern, effete, uh, you know, white intellectuals didn't. It's sort of, you know, you, you see the kind of well-meaning, but there is a kind of racist assumption underlying that in a way as well. And you, I feel like I get the same the same sort of a vibe from Voodoo Macbeth. It's 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 you know it's it's good that they're getting these roles. It's good that you are casting you know twenty some black actors, but at the same time, you have to wonder if you know how much how much research <laughs> Orson Welles did into what voodoo was actually like in in the Haitian context. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, exactly. And how much what what he understood, what he used, he did it because it was controversial. Mm-hmm. Because it was experimental, so you know, right. did you do that in a self-promoted mode. You know, was I'm going to use that because I know it's going to, you know, allow people to talk and it's going to create a sensation or a buzz about it. I don't think, 
but that's my personal opinion. I don't think Wells was that much into, you know, didn't want to show, didn't exhibit sensibilities when it came to cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that, that's, that's me. <laughs> sure. Well, I will say in Wells' defense, it could have been worse. Let's talk about Helen Tamiris. <laughs> Those pictures of Helen Tamiris' dance troupe um, are shocking and horrible. So she, for people who haven't read the book, um, Helen Tamiris was one of the choreographers involved with the Federal Dance Project. And one of her productions tried to kind of tell the a panorama of the story of black oppression in the United States, but using an all white cast. So you have female, dances, yeah, an all white female cast. And those these sort of like very, you know, like young, thin, classically trained ballet dancers that are miming, picking cotton, miming, even being lynched. Um, it's, it's a truly, even for the time, like baffling and bizarre and offensive artistic decision. Um, why did she think that was a good idea and why did no one stop her? Uh, there's no definitive answer to that, I'm afraid. <laughs> sure. I mean, perplexed. I, mean I, I came across uh, the Federal Dance um, you know, Unit while just researching it. You know, mm -hmm. it was, again, one of those happy coincidences that I mentioned in the beginning. Um, and uh, I think there are other colleagues, academics, that seriously deal with this question, but even they cannot provide a definitive answer. And I've read her unpublished, unfinished uh, biography, and I can't find anything there, you know, right. that might offer us even a glimpse of what her thinking was. Um, and I can give you different interpretations if that helps, or, you know, uh, but the, the, in no way do they offer a definitive answer or can offer a justification for that reason, right. uh, for that choice, if you like. So, um, you know, there's been, uh, just by reading uh, correspondence and, you know, articles, there seems to be, but I don't know if that's true, um, a rumor that there was an attempt to recruit African-American dancers that at that point were employed um, at the Negro Theater in Harlem's Lafayette, you know, but that did not materialize. I, you know, I haven't searched all the archives, it's impossible, but I, from the research I've done, they couldn't find a reason if that rumor is true. You know, if they were indeed approached and they said no. Um, the other thing is that um, the dance unit, the federal dance unit by its definition, was set up as a unit to work with dancers trained in, as you mentioned, in, in either traditional ballet or, you know, kind of modern dance schools that were emerging at the time. And I think it's been documented in other studies and other books quite well how uh, African-American dancers had endured racial discrimination mm -hmm. and difficulties when it came to accessing training in classical ballet, if you like, or, you know, modern dance schools. Uh, you know, at, at, it's, it's excruciatingly difficult sometimes to read some of those comments of how their bodies were not the right size for, or, you know, did not fit in the model of how a, a, 
um, a, cl- a classical ballet should look like. You know what I mean? Right. Um, or even just they didn't look like the other dancers. And part of the aesthetic of classical ballet is that all the dancers exactly. look the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, and that means that there were many stereotypical and racial attitudes towards, you know, if you like, and that's within quotes, the inability of the African-American dancer's body to be trained in ballet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And another reason I can think of is that perhaps the audience was not ready to watch a black body creatively and passionately expose the historical racial abuse they had endured. Maybe that might have been too much for its time back then. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I know that Tamiris wanted to work with females, so it would have to be a black female body doing that. And, I mean, I would love to see that performance. This is what I would want to see, but I don't know if that was, uh, maybe the audience was not ready for something like that. Mm. Um, the, you know, uh, there's another, uh, another, uh, you know, colleague has mentioned that perhaps because Tamiris was invested into leftist social politics, you know, she was trying to incorporate that in her practice, in her choreography, in her being a dancer, if you like. Um, so some uh, critics and other academics have mentioned how she was so, the primary objective of her, if you like, um, of her work and her choreography uh, and her dance style was to combine gender issues with leftist politics and trying to redefine how the female body can express itself on stage or be used on stage. And I think maybe she was, you know, she was perhaps unable to combine you know, this examination with the examination of the black female body and the racial inscriptions that come with it. Mm-hmm. But these are all different interpretations and different suggestions, but uh, there's no definitive answer, I'm afraid, as to why. But she was allowed to do that with, with Flanagan's <laughs> blessings. Right. You know, Flanagan was, was uh, a great supporter of Tamiris. Um and, and another thing, I don't know if that might be of interest, is that Tamiris from the get-go, from early on in her career, which was not a very conventional, you know, dance career, she was very interested into Negro spiritualists. So that, she did start with that. So she was into that. So for me, that would have meant that she would look into, you know, uh, especially the black female dance body and try to use that, uh, on her shows, but didn't happen. So I think it will remain a mystery unless we discover more archives that sure. uh, offer us more interpretation or suggestions regarding that. Um, there's a, a great film uh, that kind of looks at the Cradle Rock and the Federal Theater Project as a whole, and it's called the Cradle Rock. And um, the 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 fact that the House on American Activities Committee was so focused on um, persecuting children's theater is sort of treated as a joke in that film, um, yeah. which was made in the nineties. Uh, it's, it's treated as like this silly, you know, very old fashioned thing that the right would get so up in arms about children's entertainment. 
Um, and now in 2022, when many conservatives are uh, boycotting Disney because really? of, yes, yeah, there there are there are conservative boycotts of Disney because of the the mildest overtures towards LGBT representation and to the idea of children's children's entertainment being a sort of site of political struggle no longer seems uh, funny or ridiculous to me um, at this point. So could you explain a bit about kind of what the what the political stakes of that struggle were at the time and and why the right was so obsessed with the the children's plays that seem, you know, relatively innocuous that the Federal Theater Project was producing? Um, I think, well, it was because what the, the children's theater was trying to do, it was incorporate, if you like, or, you know, incorporate children in its audience and treat it respectfully and accept its anxieties, its realities, its life. You know, those children uh, were influenced by their parents' uh, lack of income, for example, or, you know, poverty or everything you can imagine, you know, during the Depression era. But um, the children's theater, you know, they tried to put up, you know, traditional plays, if you like, but some of the, you know, more, the, the plays that caused the controversy were ones that were actually offering children a different view of the, of, of the world or of life or of the relationships between, you know, uh, people or be, between money and life and the more conservative, if you like, aspects of the, the more conservative saw this as propagandistic, as damaging, as corrupting children. Um, and as soon as that notion was set, it was difficult to, you know, do away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for example, and I guess you are referring to uh, the revolt of the beavers probably uh, this this play in which it's a children's play and um, the beavers go up in arms uh, to get rid of their tyrant, you know, who, you know, was accumulating, if you like, all the wealth and was allowing them to live in poverty and, you know, in terrible conditions. And uh, the conservatives, um, but also some Democrats, you know, congressmen saw this as communist, as corrupting children, as saying you have to unionize or, you know, you know you, you're going to overthrow the government if you don't like it. And, um, you know, the, Flanagan and the writers, they tried to tell them this is not we're, what we're doing. What we're doing is we're telling children a story you know this is a story uh, that is you know relatable um, but you know this this did not go down well uh, with the politicians of its time so the federal theater project only lasted about four years from 1935 to 1939 what do you see as the lasting effects of the program uh, well, you know, first of all, um, I mentioned before, you know, all the talent it fostered that went on, you know, to produce more plays, if you like, or, you know, moved on to the movie industries. Incidentally, most of them were men. 
and that's a bit <laughs> tricky for me. Sure. Uh, but you know, they went on to produce their own work. Some of them won Oscars. You know what I mean? Um, also, uh, some of the 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 techniques they use in terms of you know, like the living newspapers or the presentation, the the commitment, if you like, to bring theater to a vast audience. I think that's that's an amazing, you know, legacy. Um, it's it's amazing if you look at the statistics which I don't have in front of me. Uh, it's staggering the amount of the millions of people that had never before experienced theater that did because of the Federal Theatre Project, you know. At the same time, I think another of its like lasting legacies is the fact that it, you know, it helped include, you know, black theatre within it and other unrepresented the, uh, voices, you know, within um, the space of theatre. It, it addressed, you know, social and economic issues. It addressed uh, injustices, racial issues. It included silenced um, audiences. And, you know, all these were taken on board and I think it enriched American theatre. And some of those issues kept appearing on stage. And um, the, I think we mentioned, we talked about it before you started recording how the living newspaper was reimagined, like during the pandemic here in the UK by the Royal Court Theatre. And that, that is part of its legacy, its lasting legacy, if you like. Well, Rania, thanks so much for being on the program to talk about your wonderful book. It was such a pleasure getting to talk with you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, I do hope people keep uh, reading and looking at the Federal Theater Project. There's so much research that riches that can still be uncovered, you know, and they can only make us uh, enjoy theater more, I think. <laughs>